Namaste, namaskaram, vanakam, namo namaha. Continuing with the American Dream, Waking Up. Chapter 6, Beef Culture, question mark. And the notes here are taken from Beyond Beef, The Rise and Fall of the Cattle Culture by Jeremy Rifkin, Penguin Books, 1992, and All Manners of Food by Stephen Menel, Basil Blackwell Incorporated, 1985. Chapter 6, Beef Culture. If you have decided to read this far, listen to our podcast of The American Dream, you have probably gone through many emotional moments. Either you have been angry against perhaps Christianity or perhaps religion in general, but remember it's not wise to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You may have felt anger against American policy and government, and probably more than a few are furious with the author. Some may concur with the facts presented, and many may think it's about time. Others may experience a completely new awakening to the many illusions that have helped to constitute part of the American dream, while still others who are deeply enmeshed in the belief of Christian supremacy are hopping mad. No matter what your view, realize that what is being offered here is simply an opportunity for many of us to psychologically come clean with the violence of the past, to hopefully attempt to alleviate much future violence. At first glance, what is about to be presented may seem so ridiculous to some as to not even warrant a discussion. However, the author feels that if one approaches the underlying subject of this chapter, vegetarianism, with an honest and fair look, one cannot help but think that a thinking person will at least have some food for serious thought. First, let us ponder this. Perhaps vegetarianism is so repugnant to many Christians because it is one of their last footholds of humanistic, if you will, supremacy? Hmm. In a strange twist, when many Christians criticize humanism, they are actually subconsciously being humanists, and ironically, even idol worshippers, in that they firmly believe in their man-made concept and image of God and their beliefs and values, to the exclusion of the concepts and images of the divine held by many other religions of the world. To get back to the point of vegetarianism, perhaps many of the old Christian claims of supremacy fading with the light of understanding, many Christians still feel at least that they have the animals to control, kill, and eat, thereby assuring the continued belief that everything is created for the central creation, man. This, of course, translates into pure humanism. The author must pause here and beg forgiveness from those enlightened Christians who love their faith and yet are able to discard many of its exclusive man-made claims. The author has met many of these fine souls. They do exist. These humble souls view Christianity as simply one religion among many. They view their prophet, Jesus, as one fine example of divinity among many. Truly, these mature souls do attempt to reach out to those of other faiths, not to ridicule or to convert, but to learn and even perhaps enjoy. However, it is the egocentrism, humanism, of many Christians that continues to be the problem. As we noted in chapter 1, the theory of geocentrism has, of course, been debunked. No longer is the earth viewed as the center of creation. 
This kind of self-centered view led to all manner of provincial thinking. Witness the view in many religions that places a particular city, generally the birthplace of a prophet, as the center of the universe. Which is, of course, true in a circle, but then everywhere else is as well. Many have also become aware of other erroneous and exclusionary biblical injunctions used against all the others. Native inhabitants, blacks, women, non-Christians, etc. Erroneous beliefs that helped to inflate the spiritual egos of so many for so long. Beliefs that proved to be often deadly to those on the receiving end of such prejudice. As a side note, we know civilizations rise and fall. But if we hold on to the soul, Atmana to the Hindus, we will always stand tall. Religions, too, they come and they go. But they're very important vehicles to help us see through this material show. So find your religious spiritual path or create an entirely new one. You do the math. Zero to many is closer to reality, hence the Sanskrit, Tamil, Hindu, neuter term, Brahman, for the Big Bang, you see. But if we try to search or create the one and only one, we will search in vain. For that is simply the religious power game. Hopefully, with the recent scandals, and remember this is written in 1993, so the scandals go on and on, the recent scandals involving Christian leaders, sex, money, mismanagement, and other forms of fraud, which can happen in other religions and do also, there are more Christians that are now beginning to realize that to continue searching for devils and heathens outside of oneself unearths too many skeletons within. Exemplified by the joke about the minister preaching on the seven deadly sins. It seems that someone stole the preacher's car, and he was vehemently preaching against the sin of stealing. However, when the preacher got to the sin of adultery, he remembered where he left his car. The overwhelming majority of Christians still naively believe that they have found the one and only way, religion and Savior. These Christians who are thoroughly indoctrinated into believing that they are acting on the inherent word of God, remember, all scriptures, doesn't matter, all written by humans, however inspired. These Christians often become quite angry and perhaps even violent when one point out that the Christian position is merely one point on a much larger circle. What is this righteous indignation and anger that many in the Christian faith exemplify? Where does it come from? Anger and violence. Though there are certainly many fine individuals within Christianity, and they do much good, that cannot be ignored. Many non-Christians and many Christians as well are quite shocked by the hard, aggressive, and often downright mean attitudes displayed by many in the Christian faith. Often this meanness is ironically demonstrated while attempting to make their spiritual point. One might ask, what is this connection between Christianity and violence? We have seen how Christianity's exclusive doctrine has been responsible for much violence throughout history, and also much good. And perhaps some Christians look to Matthew 10, 34, that seems to promise contention. However, there may be another connection. 
Some years ago, while traveling in a foreign country, the author had the chance to meet some Christian monks. He talked about many things, including celibacy and handling the emotions, especially anger. By the way, of the monks that the author has met over the years from several religions, the discussion has generally been very enlightening and refreshing. In contrast to those meetings with the priests and ministers of several religions, where dogmatic blinders have often shut down any communication. Anyway, in talking about these monks and talking about celibacy, anger, and meat-eating, the author humbly, of course, gave the simple analogy of a fire and the necessity of feeding the fire to keep it blazing. The fire, of course, is, in this analogy, the emotional nature, and the fuel, in this case, is meat. This brings to mind the story of a fiery well-known restaurant owner who would often partake of a meal of steak tartare. The staff in this fine dining establishment would cringe as they watched their boss woof down his favorite food. The waiters especially watched as his face got red as his blood pressure went up and his eyes ignite, knowing that they were in for an intense evening. In another example, the author once met a young man who was complaining of uncontrollable fits of anger. The young man was really sincere in wanting to be rid of this debilitating emotion, and so the advice was given to simply try a vegetarian diet for a while. After one month, the author saw the young man again, and the change was remarkable. Now, this is not to oversimplify one's complex emotional nature, but in the author's opinion, all one has to do is experiment with a vegetarian diet to prove to oneself the calming mental and emotional effects from a diet that greatly eliminates one's participation in the instinctive violent act of killing. In many Eastern religions, vegetarianism, though of course not always adhered to, and there are many forms of vegetarianism, is viewed as the ideal for not only helping to check one's base instinctive emotions, but also for the realization of deeper spiritual experiences. After all, killing and consuming the flesh of another being is an instinctive act, and therein, simple as it may seem, lies the answer to much of the violence and the disconnected feelings of supremacy that many experience. Is it more than coincidence that to have a beef with someone is to have a fight? Culture. If we look at the word culture, which means refinement, then the killing and eating of beef and other animals is anything but the act of a cultured person or society. Sure, this habit or perhaps addiction can take on the appearance of refinement when beautifully presented in a fine restaurant. But like all illusions, once we get past the superficial appearance, we see a thing for what it is. In America, indeed around the world, there are countless individuals who are caught in the deadly trap of meat-eating. One could surmise that the meat-eater realizes their killing of the animal, but until recently, few have realized that such a diet is also proving deadly to the consumer, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, as well as economically and environmentally. An insightful person might wax philosophic, concluding that meat-eating induces one to enter into the negative, instinctive emotions of greed, lust, and anger, and ultimately perhaps leading to more intense forms of violence. 
Or an inquisitive person might look to the factual evidence that raising animals for people consumption is ultimately detrimental to economies and the environment. The use of the word people, which is one of the few non-sexist words, human, person, woman, female, is intentional. For in the author's opinion, many of us too often take license with the word human. If we look up the word animal in the dictionary, we find such words as base or lower qualities and instinctive nature used to describe. If, on the other hand, we look up the word human, people, we find the word compassion used to distinguish between the animal and the human. To those who eat cow, which is apparently a more difficult word to swallow than beef, one can imagine walking up to this placid animal with their weapon of choice. The animal's apparently enjoying the day and even cutting the grass, unaware of the intentions of the human. Now, given the dictionary definition, who's who here? Cows have been known to cry themselves so hoarse that they cannot eat when their calf is taken from them to end up as a, quote, tasty veal entree, end quote, which apparently sounds a lot better than fresh baby cow. It is interesting to observe how many people act surprised when someone speaks about animals as thinking and caring creatures. Given the actions of many so-called human people, these queries might well be reversed. All species live, work, mate, raise their offspring, and even demonstrate nurturing and protective qualities and various emotions. Animals also demonstrate the ability to think and make decisions. A dog, for example, can certainly decide who to snarl or snap at, likewise many humans. Rarely, however, does one witness in the animal kingdom so much of the senseless killing that seems to permeate human society. Many compassionate and rational individuals are astonished at the callousness of sport, hunting, and fishing. Surely, if animal flesh is a necessity for survival, then hunting is a valid alternative. Spend a winter in Alaska, for example, or on a deserted beach. However, to simply kill another species for trophies or to simply throw them back, ostensibly to seek another cheap thrill, is to take great license with the word human. One has to wonder at the compassion level, or perhaps boredom level, of such a creature. To further amplify this kind of unconscious cruelty and perverted sense of superiority, the author had the good fortune to meet with a gentle vegetarian Rastafarian while touring a Caribbean island. This kind soul who showed a great respect for nature was telling a story of a man who saw a snake in his backyard and immediately tried to kill it. Laughing as he told the story, he said, quote, How long do you think that snake lived in that garden watching the man every day without interfering with his life? End quote. But the first time the man saw the snake, which happened to be a harmless garden variety, he was ready to chop him up. He continued, if snake had the mind of man, there wouldn't be many men alive today, end quote.
When many hear the word Hindu, their next and probably the extent of their knowledge of this profound faith comment often is, oh, the cow worshippers. The Hindu would probably quite rightly answer in the affirmative, but also might make the observation that many other cultures worship the cow as well, albeit as a burnt offering at mealtime. Who among us can eat grass, drink water, and have milk come out the other end? Pretty amazing stuff. This miraculous substance can then be transformed into butter, yogurt, and cheese. Cow urine is an effective germ killer and antiseptic. The dung is an efficient fuel and antiseptic as well. And the ashes from the burnt dung are used in Hindu religious rituals. Therefore, it is easy to see for many to view the cow as a creative blessing worthy of worship, respect, and reverence. To worship is to revere and to show respect. To many, this is the principle of nonviolence known in Hinduism as ahimsa. Of course, it is obvious that killing is a part of life. We can't escape that. We all kill. At the very least, mosquitoes, flies, ants, and even minute organisms each time we breathe. We may even kill or at least injure another's feelings, ideas, and aspirations. Therefore, killing is not really the issue, but the degree to which we kill is. The principle being that the more we avoid unnecessary killing, the more compassionate and spiritual or fully human, divine, we become. Naturally, there will be those who scoff, assuming a macho attitude of false strength, partially derived from a heavy meat diet. However, one might consider that is generally the defenseless animals that most of humanity prey upon. Cows, pigs, chickens, lambs, and goats. It would seem, then, that a real macho man or woman would want to pick on something that could fight back. One wonders how many meat-eaters there would be if one had to go one-on-one without the unfair advantage of a gun with a lion, alligator, snake, or even a dog or cat. Therefore, strength and meat-eating just do not equate. For what human, no matter how beefed up, is any match for the vegetarian elephant, horse, steer, or bison? It would seem, then, that to be fully human, one would be fully compassionate. However, if we are honest, most of us are somewhat of a mixture, part animal, part human, How much, of course, in the negative is entirely up to us. Necessity or taste? If we honestly look into the facts and then ask ourselves why we should eat meat, we can come up with one answer, taste. Of course, one has to take into consideration Asian, a culture such as the Eskimo culture, where meat-eating is an absolute necessity for survival. Likewise, the American Indians needed the buffalo and other animals to survive. One cannot fault these cultures. In fact, their great reverence for the animals and the wise and complete use of their prey warrants admiration. However, with the abundance of grains, fruits, and vegetables in many countries, there may be no reason to eat flesh In fact, it will be proven that meat-eating is not only not necessary, but is actually detrimental in many ways to individuals and societies. 
We have already discussed the relationship between the instinctive act of meat-eating and the instinctive emotion of anger. We have also recognized that killing is a part of the creative process, and we cannot entirely avoid it. However, it is a fact that one can live and live well without eating animals. One has only to look to the profound cultures of the Far East and elsewhere to witness the healthy, gentle generations of vegetarians. Of course, much is changing in many cultures as the beef culture stampedes into virgin territory, as well as the presence of born-again vegetarians sprouting up in most unlikely places. Presently, in the West, even the medical experts have recognized many of the ill effects of a meat-centered diet. However, the mere fact that many are not aware at all of the tremendous negative effects of meat-eating, and especially beef, is testament to the nature of illusions and, do we dare say, brainwashing? The true test of controlled indoctrination is that the controlled have no awareness of the extent of the indoctrination. If we look at the various creatures, including the human creature, we noticed that certain ones are naturally herbivores, while others are carnivores. The herbivores, for example, horses, elephants, cows, rhinoceroses, these are all vegetarians. The carnivores, for example, lions, jackals, snakes, alligators, they all eat meat. Both of these types have their place in the natural order of things and they have very distinctive anatomical features as well as somewhat similar psychological profiles. The question is, where does the human fit into this? The human has relatively flat teeth, like the herbivore, unlike the carnivore. To fully chew grains and vegetable matter as opposed to the pointed teeth necessary for tearing flesh. The human has lateral jaw movement, like the herbivore, unlike the carnivore. To fully grind grains and vegetables, as opposed to the carnivorous jaw, that only moves up and down to deliver a powerful bite and tearing action. The human has sweat glands all over their body, like the herbivore, but unlike the carnivore which relieves body heat only through the sweat glands located in the tongue and sometimes the feet, hence the panting. One of the most important distinctions between the herbivore and the carnivore is the length of the intestines. The herbivore, the vegetarians, have a very long set of intestines so that the nutrients of the vegetable matter can be slowly and completely absorbed. The carnivore, on the other hand, has a very short set of intestines so that the meat, which gathers toxins rapidly, passes quickly through the body. If we leave a piece of meat out of refrigeration for a short time, we know the result, which can even prove to be deadly. However, we could safely leave vegetables and certainly grain fruits out of refrigeration for long periods of time with no ill effects whatsoever. In fact, we can even eat part of some vegetables and plant the other half, it grows. We would certainly look silly trying to plant one half of a dead animal. Thus, realizing that meat is, strong as it may sound, in reality, dead, decomposing flesh. 
one has to wonder what happens when potentially toxic and bacteria-laden meat is put into a body with a long set of intestines designed to slowly assimilate material. Do we find the number of severe diseases in those other species that adhere to a diet that appears their bodies were designed for? Not only are many physical diseases keeping the medical professions busy and the hospitals full, but what about the link to the mental and emotional diseases plaguing the, quote, civilized, unquote, world? True, there are many factors that contribute to the problem of violence. However, the author feels that many would naturally assume that both the type and amount of food and other substances that one ingests is directly related to not only one's physical body, but also to one's mental, emotional, and spiritual body. Therefore, what does it tell us when America has achieved the, quote, status, unquote, of the most violent nation, whose number one export is arms and munitions, while multitudes flock religiously to the temples of McDonald's, which are found in almost every American city and town? In fact, founder Ray Kroc of McDonald's tried to purposely place his, quote, sanctuaries, unquote, near a hometown church, and is even reported to have compared the golden arches to the pearly gates. Approximately 200 Americans per second religiously purchase a hamburger from a fast food chain. And the reference to religion is more than metaphorical, as Kroc himself once says, quote, I speak of faith in McDonald's as if it were religion. And without meaning any offense to the Holy Trinity, the Quran, or the Torah, that's exactly the way I think of it. I have often said that I believe in God, family, and McDonald's. And in the office, that order is reversed. End quote. One might wonder at this point if there's any correlation between fast foods and instant salvation preached by many in the West. What does it tell us when many American teens who survive on burgers, little aware of the trail of slaughter, environmental damage, and enforced poverty, have achieved the status of number one in teenage violence, in teenage suicides, pregnancies, in contrast to the many gentle vegetarian youth encountered in many other cultures? Therefore, in the author's opinion, many parents have the opportunity to help create healthy, virtuous. There is a link between the increase in sexual passion and a heavy meat diet and peaceful offspring to a great extent by simply adjusting the diet. What does it demonstrate when turkey dinners and bull roasts are commonly sanctioned by some religious institutions as opposed to many other religions where the presence of any slaughtered animal in the temple precincts would be tantamount to spitting on one's holy scriptures. How different is this flesh-eating in many Western churches from religions that directly offer animal sacrifices in their services? Again, this is not to imply that all meat-eaters are disease-ridden, loathsome, violent creatures, but there are too many parallels between certain physical diseases, violent behavior, and the slaughtering and consumption of flesh to be ignored. Look at the huge, highly profitable factory farm business, 
Gone are the days of the small family farm to a great extent, replaced by giant establishments that inhumanely confine and crowd the animals, who are then pumped with hormones and rapid feeding techniques to shorten the time to the slaughterhouse and to, of course, maximize profits. Many believe that to put another creature through the kind of stress that the factory farm business demands and to routinely go about the business of slaughtering, butching, and cellaring other creatures creates a ripple effect of heartlessness that permeates the lives of individuals and whole societies. Violence or meism, me against you, can take on many forms. When one is taught, especially in a religious context, that, for example, the earth and all the creatures in it are to be subdued, Genesis 1.28, then a certain kind of justification for exploitation is programmed into the mind. We have already seen how these religious justifications for white male Christian supremacy were used against non-whites, women, and non-Christians. Now we will look at the same pattern of discrimination leveled against other species and consequently the environment. Grazing for pasture. The early explorers in search for spices were looking for these condiments to not only enhance the taste of their meat, but to keep it from spoiling as well. These explorers were also searching for grazing lands as well as gold and heathens to convert. Columbus transported the first cattle to the New World, quote-unquote. Thus, from the beginning, cattle played an important part in the acquisition of lands and the subjugation of native inhabitants. Subsequently, the Spanish conquistadors introduced the longhorn steer, first in South and Central America and then in Mexico. Later in the 1500s, in order to meet the demands of the increasing herds, the Spanish padres began converting the Indians not only into Christians, but into the first cowboys as well, gauchos. Before this other G factor came into play, however, the Indians were not permitted to ride horses, the Spaniards being afraid that the Indians might rise up against them. Tremendous fortunes were made in these early days, which resulted in creating a wealthy class of cattle barons in the Americas. The Christian church was, of course, a major player, as exemplified by Father Ubiso Francisco Quino. A noted historian, Herbert E. Bolton, stated that Father Quino, quote, was easily the cattle king of his day and region. In the 1770s, Franciscan priests performed similar conversions on the Indians in North America as Spanish missions crept up the California coast. The church seemed to be delighted by this lucrative undertaking until Mexico declared its independence from Spain in 1821. Now these powerful and wealthy missions were seen as a threat to the new government, and the missions were ordered to be secularized. In response, the priests ordered the great herds slaughtered. Three words closely linked together, chattel, i.e. movable property, also archaic for slave, and cattle, which translated into capital, became watchwords in the colonization and the Christianization plans for the Americas. As well as Indians, blacks, and even poor immigrants from Europe, were enlisted to help manage the increasing herds of movable wealth 
This made many super-rich while enforcing many others into abject poverty. Cattle raising has long been associated with the elite and the ruling classes. However, in order to fatten both their wallets and their bellies, ruthless exploitation of native inhabitants has been the rule, as these indigenous people were generally forced off their ancestral lands and then forced to grow grain not for human consumption, but for the cattle herds. The situation is further exasperated by driving the price of staples up and forcing many into poverty and subsequently into overcrowded living conditions. This in part resulted in many of the squalid living conditions of today in many third world countries. But let us return to the beef eating addiction in America and follow the trail that leads us back to merry old England. The Carnivorous Brits the British, as prime leaders of carnivorous Europe, a long-standing appellation, took their lust for flesh and blood to new heights. King James, of the authorized King James Version fame, like the others of English nobility, loved the hunt as well as the meat. After personally slitting the throat of his prey, he would, quote, dab the faces of his courtiers with blood, which they were not permitted to wash off, end quote. In medieval England, it became a contest among the aristocrats to attempt to outdo each other in staging elaborate meat orgies. In time, these gluttonous feasts, where whole roasted animals and birds were served, often with the feathers stuck back in for effect, became so excessive that King Edward II had to decree a limit on the number of meat dishes served at any one meal. And it appears that the Christian clergy at this time had quite a gluttonous problem as well, as Archbishop Thomas Cranmer had to also set guidelines restricting the appetites of his priests. Yet he reportedly lamented his failure, that this order was kept for two or three months till the disusing of certain willful persons, it again came to the old excesses, end quote. To many, it is quite an enigma, past and present, that political leaders, who are supposed to put the welfare of the people they represent first, to say nothing of the priesthood, who are definitely in the role of servants of the masses and exemplars of sacrifice, these people would not only stuff themselves at the people's expense, but be so blatant about it at that. Be that as it may, this lust for meat became a major factor in the continuing exploitation of land, people, and resources, all sanctioned by church and state. By the 18th century, the Brits were searching for new pastures to fill their demand for beef and mutton. In Scotland and Ireland, for example, many in the lower classes were forced off their lands to provide grazing for the herds. Forced onto marginal lands, many of these displaced peasants were forced to grow potatoes which grew in the marginal soil, hence the Irish, quote, love, unquote, of potatoes. When the infamous blight of 1846 destroyed the Irish potato, resulting in starvation and death, many of the survivors simply packed up and migrated to the New World. This, of course, proved to be extremely gainful for English bankers, who simply took vast tracts of vacant land, which in short time doubled the exportation of Irish beef cattle to England. 
By the latter part of the 19th century, 50% of the land and two-thirds of the wealth of Ireland was directed towards cattle raising. So in love with beef were many Brits that they would vie for the heaviest cow or steer, often hanging pictures in their homes of their favorite bovine. These grotesquely rotund pinups often had bodies so huge that their legs could not support them for long periods of time. These paradigms of English decadence were often carted into the cow-worshipping contests their owners delighted in staging. Of course, those beef-eating Brits loved their beef richly laced with fat, which became the symbol of opulence. The more fat, the better. And it was in this pursuit of prime marbled beef that the American cattle connection was formed. Establishing the American Cattle Connection In pursuit of the Englishman's lust for fat-laced beef, an infamous, to some, alliance was formed between the wealthy British and the American cattlemen. However, there were a couple of obstacles that had to be dealt with first. One of these obstacles was the Indian, who was rapidly being eradicated from the American scene. The other obstacle, which was synonymous with the Indian's lifestyle, was the buffalo. And thus, when the War Department in the 1870s stepped up its campaign to wipe out the buffalo, it was, quote, killing two birds with one stone, end quote. These sentiments were expressed by General Nelson Miles, who said in 1876, quote, When we get rid of the Indians and buffalo, the cattle will fill this country, end quote. Many Americans joined with the U.S. Army in this, quote, patriotic mission, unquote. In true patriotic enthusiasm, buffalo hunting became an instant hit. The emerging railroad industry capitalized on the new sport by offering budget excursions through the plains, assuring that even the eastern tenderfoots could safely and comfortably shoot buffalo as their train leisurely rolled along. Thus, during the 1870s, the mass slaughter of the buffalo became the fashionable thing to do among the wealthy. Even European royalty traveled to America specifically to join in the new craze. Some estimates put the number of slaughtered buffalo around the 4 million mark, with American legends like General Custer and Buffalo Bill Cody leading in the carnage. Wild Bill often arranged shooting matches for visiting dignitaries, after which the carcasses were often simply left to rot. Even though buffalo hunting was an exciting sport to many, the government's underlying reason for the slaughter was to both put an end to the Indians' culture, which of course we all know is genocide, and to pave the way for the lucrative cattle industry. General Philip Sheridan, in his address to the Texas legislator, summed up the strategy, quote, These men, the buffalo hunters, have done more to settle the vexed Indian question than the entire regular army has done in the last 30 years. They are destroying the Indians' commissary. For the sake of lasting peace, let them kill, skin, and sell until the buffalo is exterminated, then your prairies can be covered with speckled cattle, end quote. Thus, in a few short years, by the end of the 1870s, the noble buffalo's 15,000 years of existence 
had been virtually exterminated, as well as the subduing of the heathen. Free Range The opening up of the western frontier gave the illusion of free land, the wide open spaces. However, the underlying moral costs only continued to increase America's spiritual deficit. Now that the genocidal mission against the Native Americans was more or less accomplished, and with the virtual extinction of the buffalo, many Americans and wealthy English, with dollar signs in their eyes, moved in to fill these wide-open spaces. Rapidly, large cattle corporations were formed, buying up huge acreage and often simply fencing in large tracts of what was considered public land. This fencing in of the American West was a brutal chapter in the American history, with many bloody fights over the devil's hat band, i.e. barbed wire. Wealthy British investors played a major role teaming up with Corn Belt farmers to provide the prized fatty beef. This alliance began the trend of growing grain for cattle rather than for people. The results of which have resulted in presently at least 70% of the U.S. grain going to feed cattle. This is an extremely wasteful practice as it takes at least 7 pounds of grain to produce only one pound of meat in return. Think of how many people can eat on seven pounds of grain. Paradoxically, by 1885, British financial interests became so strong in America that an anti-British protest was mounted, with the first of many cries, America for Americans. One has to wonder if the Native Americans were shaking their heads in disbelief. This illusion of the superiority of prime and choice fatty beef, sanctioned by the USDA and promoted by those in the retail trade, not only literally stole food out of the mouths of those who could least afford it, but wreaked havoc on the environment as well. Perhaps the ultimate irony was that this prime beef has proven to be a serious health risk to the consumer. Even those in the Western medical profession have begun realizing this illusion. Slaughterhouses. As American cow worship continued to grow in popularity, and with the development of refrigerated shipping containers and rail cars in the late 1880s, corporate power expanded out into many related services, including the lucrative packing house. By the beginning of the 20th century, these giant houses of slaughter rose in the large Midwestern cities of Kansas City, Omaha, and Chicago. They were, quote, monuments, unquote, of speed and efficiency in killing and butchering animals. On these disassembly lines, as many as 1,200 head and other body parts per day could be rearranged by as few as four men into food products bearing little resemblance to the once living creature. The conditions on the kill floor were so deplorable, as first revealed to the masses by author Upton Sinclair in his famous book, The Jungle, that this killing industry quickly gained the dubious reputation of being one of the most dangerous and dirty occupations in the U.S., with the highest rate of employee turnover. 
The inhuman conditions also sparked the infamous riots of the early 1900s against management and the newly emerging unions. This turmoil that lasted for decades necessitated the calling out of federal troops and local police, resulting in numerous injuries and several deaths. Of course, though most Americans were willing to religiously eat their meat, few were willing to work in these hellish conditions. Therefore, a large percentage of the working force consisted of immigrant and migrant workers. Actually, management encouraged the hiring of those, especially who could not speak English, apparently so that they would not be aware of what the inspectors were saying, nor could they follow their instructions properly. As one USDA inspector said, quote, People are hired off the street and certified as soon as they can hold a knife, end quote. These immigrant and migrant workers generally lived in run-down shanty towns and trailer parks. One has to wonder if much of the underlying reasoning in admitting many poor immigrants into this country, past and present, is to provide a labor force for the menial jobs that many Americans refuse to do. Times haven't changed much. And there has not been much improvement, except in the speed and efficiency of the killing process. Currently, as of 1993, approximately 300 cattle an hour, suspended by chain, can be moved along a conveyor, sliced up and neatly packed into boxes for shipping. The sanitary conditions and inspection procedures are still dangerously inadequate, as occasional outbreaks of salmonella attest to. Eleanor Kennelly, a spokesman for the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, stated, quote, A meat-packing plant is like nothing you've ever seen or could imagine. It's like a vision of hell, end quote. There are reports of killing floors becoming so slippery that the workers can hardly walk. Conveyor belts often become so clogged with grease and body parts that they grind to a halt in which case workers often throw salt to free the mechanisms rather than shut down production. As the Iowa beef packer spokesman stated, quote, Once we push the button in the morning, we don't want the chain to stop. If it stops, it costs money. We want to pump the tonnage through, end quote. There are also reports of rats and cockroaches roaming the killing floors and the storage areas. These large corporations are not infrequently fined for health and safety violations, sometimes in the millions of dollars. However, even many of the USDA inspectors are appalled by the level of violations allowed by administrative policy. In fact, so blatant are many of the violations, as one inspector recalled, quote, he could see the contamination due to feces and hair from four feet away, end quote. Other inspectors report diseased and sick cattle with pneumonia, abscesses on the lungs and ribs, broken blood vessels, and carcasses filled with rings, tags, nails, claws, and teeth. So deplorable have conditions often become that 24 USDA inspectors recently sent a letter to the National Academy of Science. Quote, In good conscience, we can no longer say that we know USDA-approved beef is wholesome. USDA advertises the SIS, Streamlined Inspection System, as fewer inspectors looking at less meat on more carcasses at faster line speeds, all without lowering public health standards. We don't buy it, end quote. 
Missing a Great Opportunity The Native Americans have always greatly revered Mother Earth, as do the Hindus, Bhumi Mata. Ritta is actually the first word for what we call Hinduism today, meaning Mother Nature. Ritvijam, victory to Mother Earth, Mother Nature. And this is certainly a testament to arrogance and ignorance that a majority of the new settlers on the Indians' homeland passed up a great opportunity to learn from their superiors in these matters. Native American cultures have been traced back at least 30,000 years, and apparently these keepers of the earth provided such a tempting sight to the new immigrants that the instinct fell in love with the abundance they saw. Unfortunately, many of the newcomers confused love with lust, as this love was too often possessive and thus thoughtless. The genocide committed against the native inhabitants and other forms of rape committed by many, including belief-filled Christians, continued as the beef culture walked all over the environment and the poor. The increased demand for beef placed a heavy burden on the land as cattle grazing played a major role in desertification. This is where the land is basically stripped, leaving it unprotected, resulting in the serious problem of soil erosion. The impact of millions of cattle trampling and compacting the soil not only causes severe erosion, but destroys the minute organisms, insects, earthworms, etc., necessary to replenish the soil. Presently, This is 1993 again. America has lost almost one-third of its topsoil due to deforestation, overcropping, and overgrazing. And this problem is not peculiar to America. In Africa, for example, one sees the results of years of the mismanagement of cattle. When colonial powers invaded the African continent, the land and the life of the people was altered, perhaps irreparably. By changing the way of life from a barter to a monetary system, nomadic herds, which was a good practice giving the land time to replenish itself, were consolidated, causing the resulting desertification. We have already discussed the fact that growing grain for cattle rather than for human consumption is extremely wasteful, as well as the increased demand that cattle place on the water supply. In Africa, not only did grain not go to the poor who needed it most, but there was also the inevitable fact of the rising cost in staples as a result of this wasteful practice. And the piece de resistance, most of the beef ended up on European tables. Like the West Indies before Columbus, quote, discovered, unquote, them, before the colonial powers invaded Africa, much of the land was lush and the people well-fed. This is in stark contrast to the deserts and starving people of today, in large part due to the overgrazing of cattle, so that a privileged few could partake of their ritual sacrament. Further obstacles to be subdued. In America, in order to fill the land with speckled cattle, as General Sheridan expressed, it was first necessary to rid the plains of many of the predators and big game that competed with the expanding cattle herds. From the beginning of the 20th century, the genocide, if you will, committed against what have been deemed predator species, has been testament to what amounts to maniacal sadism. On federally leased lands, trees and shrubs which provided food for the big game 
have been routinely eliminated and grass planted to support the cattle. Even today, the Bureau of Land Management and the Division of Animal Damage Control spend millions each year to control predator species. Leg hole traps and snares resulting in a slow, painful death have been routinely used. The popular sport of denning is utilized by government agents, wherein coyote dens are filled with kerosene and lit, quickly incinerating the young pups. Disguising food pellets containing strychnine, cyanide, and the infamous compound 1080, which produce a violent cardiac arrest, have been routinely used to eradicate millions of animals to ensure that no red-blooded American has to ask, where's the beef? Apparently, not being able to think very far ahead, this mass carnage of the predators, quote-unquote, resulted in the increase of the rodent population, rabbits, squirrels, etc., to which the government took to airdropping large amounts of poison pellets to control these vermin. Naturally, this plunder leads to an increase in the insects, locusts, etc. The solution? Spray the pest. Is it any wonder that many of the native inhabitants took to drinking? Go south, young man. Spoiling much of the land in the American West and elsewhere, many beef entrepreneurs look to other lands to furnish further chattel. Companies like Gulf and Western, Swift, United Brands, Armor, International Foods, and Dow Chemical, to name a few, began moving into the Amazon region in the 1960s. By now, of course, the routine had been well re rehearsed. Displace the locals and the indigenous species, strip the land, bring in the herds, erode the soil, and as a result, make a huge profit. Move on. As one American rancher in the Amazon so succinctly put it, quote, You can buy the land out there now for the same price as a couple of bottles of beer per acre. When you've got half a million acres and 20,000 head of cattle, you can leave the lousy place and go live in Paris, Hawaii, Switzerland, or anywhere you choose. But of course, the illusions are insidious. For example, the granting of tax incentives by the Brazilian government to those who wish to come in and basically rape the land. In Central America, approximately two-thirds of the agricultural land has been replaced by cattle grazing most of which end up in North America. This practice further increases the economic plight of the local populations as an acre of farmland for human consumption can sustain hundreds more in food and jobs than the same acre employed in cattle rearing. But for many, it appears that their appetite for success is just too intense, and as a result, blind as well. The chief of the McDonald's Japanese division epitomized this in his statement, quote, If we eat hamburgers for a thousand years, we will become blonde, and when we become blonde, we can conquer the world, end quote. Conquer or be conquered. Herein lies the crux of the matter, and the tie is established between the, in this case, Christian mindset of dominance and the practice of meat-eating. Christianity first gained its place in the sun when it defeated Mithra, the sun god of the Roman Emperor Constantine. Thereafter, the emperor made Christianity the state religion. And with the help of the subsequent church fathers, such as Eusebius, the stage was set to enact a world religious power play. Quote, 
we shall introduce into this history, in general, only those events which may be useful first to ourselves and afterwards to posterity. End quote. Ironically, throughout his life, the emperor continued to flip-flop between his original pagan faith, which questions Christianity's exclusive doctrine, and Christianity. On his deathbed, however, the emperor is reported to have converted back to his old-time religion. From its inception, Christianity has striven for world dominance, either actually or doctrinally implied. Therefore, it is not coincidental that the practice of meat-eating should be so prevalent among many in the Christian faith. Again, the author begs forgiveness from those Christians that do not suffer from these delusions of grandeur, D-O-G, G-O-D, grand old delusion, from claims of world dominance and are even perhaps vegetarians. Meat-eating has long been associated with the dominant class, the nobility, the well-to-do, the winners. Even everyday language has reflected this attitude with the added emphasis of male dominance. In many, if not all, cultures, the lion's share of the family meat has always gone to the male members of the household, while vegetables were reserved for the females. To be a vegetable or a fruit have never been complementary appellations. However, as we discussed at the beginning of this chapter, meat-eating and strength do not necessarily equate, and certainly in the spiritual realm it is considered by many to be an oxymoron. In fact, in cholesterol, it may be the animals that get the final revenge, as many who dine high up on the protein ladder are suffering from all kinds of painful disorders and diseases, such as clogged arteries, heart disease, and various cancers. Presently, colon and prostate cancer are reaching epidemic proportions, especially among those who eat a heavy meat diet. Times have changed. No longer do we live in caves and find it necessary to grab our club and search for dinner. No longer do many walk and run long distances as well as fight off the elements and other beasts that burned off any excesses in our diet. Hopefully, humankind is becoming more enlightened, more compassionate, more spiritual. However, all one has to do is pick up the paper or listen to the evening news to realize that there's a lot of violence that goes on day after day by the so-called human race. There is still a lot of exclusive rhetoric in many areas of life, and sadly even in the religious world. Like animals fighting over territorial rights, there are many that simply refuse to admit that another person, another culture, another philosophy, another religion has a valid point of view and a necessary contribution to the overall scheme of life. There is still a tremendous amount of cruelty inflicted upon by humans against one another, against the environment, and against other species. Vegetarianism is not only a healthy alternative, but a compassionate decision. To many, vegetarianism is a vital ingredient in developing one's spiritual life, a life based on more nonviolence and a respect for all life, as opposed to a meat-based diet that is based on the instinctive attitude for dominance meant to elevate oneself through conquering another. Summary it is a fact that one can live well on a vegetarian diet. Dairy products perhaps included at the individual's discretion. 
Though a case may be made for omnivorism, in some instances humans seem to be best designed to assimilate a vegetarian diet. Meat-eating is synonymous with aggression, oppression, violence, and death. Rearing cattle for consumption has exploited native peoples and forced many into poverty. Overgrazing cattle and rearing grain-fed beef has proved detrimental to indigenous species and the environment. Beef eating greatly increases one's health risk. One quarter of the world's land mass is used for grazing cattle. One third of the world's grain goes to feed cattle. Seventy percent of U.S. grain goes to feed cattle. One half of the water used in the U.S. is for cattle rearing. Two-thirds of the exported grain from the U.S. goes to feed cattle, not people. Approximately one billion people in the world today are starving, many of these children. To put the problem of meat-eating into perspective, in the current world situation, let us put it in terms that most people can understand. For every $100 I take from you, I will give you $15 in return. This is exactly what the meat eater does, and it is a conservative estimate that it takes at least seven pounds of grain, corn, soy, etc., to produce only one pound of meat. Therefore, in order for one person to eat one pound of meat, at least six others must go hungry. If one is serious about helping to end world hunger and concerned about the amount of violence, not only in one's own life, but also in the lives of others, then it would appear to make some logical sense to greatly diminish, at best, one's lust for meat. Or, one may choose to listen to the word of God, Thou mayest eat flesh, whatsoever thy soul lusteth after. Deuteronomy 12.20 Thus ends chapter 6, Beef Culture. Stay tuned for chapter 7 as we delve into the power of belief.